Let's learn how to celebrate. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, hey, give this person your seat, and then you will be embarrassed, and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. Here's the thing, verse 11. For those who exalt themselves will be, say the word, humbled. And those who humble themselves will be, say the word, exalted. Very important. Then Jesus turned to his host. So when you put on a, a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't just invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another one said, I now have a wife. So I can't come. I guess that's reason enough. <laughs> the servant returned and told his master what they had said. And his master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he reported, There's still room for more. And the master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. NFL football started, what, last Thursday? Of course, that was a big day for me. Just kidding. Y'all know me. <laughs> it just wasn't. <laughs> yeah, y'all can have it all. Actually, I don't mind sports. Like, if you want to invite me to your house to watch a game, I will come because I know that sports people have really good food during games, and I'll come eat your food, and you can yell at the TV. Uh, one thing, though, about NFL football that's kind of interesting to me is, is sort of a new thing that's called the touchdown celebration. Anybody seen those? You know what I'm talking about? Because this sort of gets my attention when I watch a game. This is what happens now when someone carries a ball into the end zone and scores a touchdown. What do they do? Yeah, they celebrate, but it's just kind of all kinds of weirdness, and that's kind of part of it. They realize that all the eyes are on them and that the camera's on them, and they, it's just sort of a moment to, to, to sort of show yourself, and that's what they do. Now, they started out kind of small celebrations. They would just, you know, spike the football, and then somebody started spinning the football, and that was all exciting. And then, and then somebody decided, I think, to, to do the, the Macarena. So this giant football player out there doing this in, in the end zone. I mean, seriously, you've seen this, right? And then started doing like a Pee Wee Herman dance. Some of them were doing this kind of stuff. And, 
And one guy does a, a belt thing. I don't get, but it's, it's just, he just does this kind of thing uh, up in the camera. It's, it's just the weirdest thing to see these giant football players doing all this crate, you know, doing the worm in the end zone. Now, actually, for the first time, I'm sort of enjoying football. I mean, this is something to look at, but, but go figure. They're now assigning penalties for that, and they're calling it excessive celebration. You can be penalized in football for excessive celebration. Now, let's just put it out here. What is it about these little shows, these little dances and stuff, what is it that the NFL would find objectionable about excessive celebration? What do you think? What, do I need to explain sports to you people? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's a team sport. It's a team sport. And these guys who scored the touchdown, they didn't do it by themselves. It's a team sport. And so it's considered really poor sportsmanship to go up and take the spotlight and do your dancing and all of that like it's all about you. You understand? It's arrogant. It's, it's poor sportsmanship. It's bad taste. And now there's a 15-yard penalty that goes with it. But interestingly, let's be honest, those guys are just acting out all of our dreams. I mean, I have to be honest with you, and I hate this about myself, but if I'm ever in a football game and score a touchdown, you have not seen a personal party than the one I will throw. I will, I, I will do it all. It, it will be so unbelievable. That's what I'm saying. These guys are just living out our dreams. This is how we think. We just sort of imagine that if all the eyes are on us, we should put on a show, that, that somehow it's about us. And it's not just NFL football players. If you have kids in preschool now, kids in preschool typically sing a lot of little songs. We sing the ABC songs and songs about the state capitals and all of that. But now one of the main songs in many preschools is a little ditty that goes like this. It goes, I am special, I am special. Look at me, you will see someone very special, someone very special. It is me, it is me. Seriously? We're teaching kids that. Look at me, you will see someone very special. It is me. Seriously? You're teaching that to kids who eat their boogers. I'm not kidding. You're teaching this to children who, who, who still wet the bed at night and eat their boogers, and we're teaching them, look at me, you will. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. Tim Keller recently has written a book. It's, it's amazing, a little bitty book. You can read it in, in one sitting. It's called... The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's, 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 it's an amazing book. One of the things Tim Keller says is that in all of human history, in every human civilization, there's been sort of one constant moral principle, and, and that was that pride, they often called it hubris, was evil. It was bad. In, in other words, 
One of the root causes of human evil is that people think too much of themselves. And this was the consensus for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That, that, that most evil comes from the fact that people are, are focused on themselves and self-centered. They think too highly of themselves and therefore they inflict the, their idea of whatever evil on the world. That there's no restraint on them because they see themselves as above it all. That was always how civilization functioned. That people thought too much of themselves and that was the problem with, with human society. But understand... In our day, in our day, in the last century, our culture has absolutely turned all of that upside down. We just simply, out of the blue, decided to believe the opposite. And we've trained one another to believe the opposite. So in other words, we never tell people that your problem is that you think too much of yourself. What do we say? Your problem is low self-esteem. You need to think higher of yourself. Isn't this really interesting and weird? That in all of human history, we've just turned that upside down. And now we say the problem is low self-esteem. People don't think enough of themselves. People don't love themselves. People aren't their own best friend and all the other stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's the whole look at me, you will see. Your grandma would have never sung that. Your great-grandparents would have never thought like that. This is just something we've introduced. We become very, very aware of our self-esteem. Tim Keller points out that in the human body, we are typically completely unaware of all of our parts. As I'm preaching, I, I, if I stop and think about it, I've got two elbows, but I never think about them. They just work and bend while I preach. They make my arms move and all of that. But I don't think about my elbows unless there's something wrong with them. If, if I bruise one or, or get arthritis and one becomes swollen, then you think about it. I don't think about the tip of my nose or the lobes of my ears or the heels of my feet until there's something wrong, until there's something diseased. We're typically very unaware of all of the healthy parts of our body. That's what he says. But So what does it mean that all of a sudden we're so obsessed with our, our self-esteem, our ego? What does it mean that now we're always dealing with people with hurt feelings, always dealing with people who need more attention or or, or want more attention, or people who somehow always want to be the center of everything? Tim Keller would say that the fact that we are so obsessed with our egos means there must be something terribly wrong with ourselves, something horribly wrong with our egos to make us so constantly aware of ourselves. Tim Keller says that the real answer for low self-esteem is not high self-esteem. Your your answer for your life is not that you should think more of yourself. We don't want to inflate you any more than you're already inflated, understand? It's not that you need to think more highly of yourself. You just need to stop thinking about yourself at all. Understand? Just stop thinking about yourself. This is sort of what Jesus says to the Pharisees on this particular day. Now, the thing about the Pharisees, they sort of are always at parties. They have banquets, a lot of dinners. They love to throw things like this, but they're never fun. A Pharisee party is never fun because the Pharisees can't have fun. You understand this, right? Do you know some Pharisees? They just can't have fun. And this is supposed to be a joyful occasion. It's supposed to be fun, but it's so not fun because the Pharisees suck the fun out of everything. 
They just do. And I'll just stop and say this. Whenever this church comes into a time when we can't have fun anymore, it just means the Pharisees are winning. Anytime in a church's life when there's just no fun, no joy, no celebration, it always means the Pharisees are winning. They can't have fun because they can't forget about themselves. They cannot forget about themselves. It's kind of a red carpet thing, actually. The uh, Pharisees were the celebrities of their day. There are no movie stars, no rock stars, nothing like that. The, the biggest show anywhere is, is, is what goes on at the temple. So people go to the temple and they watch all of the worship. It's amazing. They would never see anything like that anywhere else. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they run that show and they really do sort of become the celebrities of their day, the most important men in town. And, and so after this particular day of worship, they throw a party for themselves. And it's one of those affairs where it's really important who gets invited and who's not invited. And, and Jesus gets invited. Now, if you read the early part of the chapter, you get the picture of how the people who aren't invited, they stand around the driveway and watch the red carpet. I mean, read it. I'm not making this up. They watch the Pharisees all stroll in, and the Pharisees love that. They love to be watched. They love to be admired. They love to think that they're the center of it all. But you'll notice right there, even on the red carpet, those first six verses in, the, in, in that early moment of the party, when Jesus is on the red carpet, Jesus does something that they would never do. He stops and look over here at a man that's not invited, a crippled man, a man with swollen legs. And Jesus goes over and talks to that man and heals him and nearly kills the party right there. The Pharisees cannot celebrate anything like that. Do you understand? And that's how Jesus comes in. And then he just watches these clowns. He just watches them coming into a party. It's supposed to be fun, guys. But what do they do? They become obsessed over who is sitting where. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because there are seats of honor at this sort of banquet. And it all depends now, not just to be invited, but where you sit says something about how important you are. Now, you all understand, I think some of you understand how in Jesus' day, they typically ate on very, very low tables down on the ground. And they would have these little couches, like futons, right on the ground too, very, very low. And they didn't sit up at tables like we eat. They actually reclined over on their side, on their elbow like this. And they would eat with their hand. So this is the picture. This is how they eat. So if you're the host, if you're the most important person, you're at the head of the table. That means you would recline probably on your left elbow and eat with your right hand. And then your feet are going out this way on the same couch where everybody's sitting. Understand? You're reclining. So you're up here and your feet are going that way. You got the picture? So what's the second best seat? Well, if I'm the most important guy, the second best seat is right here. Because this guy can lean on an elbow and be with me face to face and kind of shoulder to shoulder and we can eat and talk. And, and if I'm the second guy, I'm by the most important guy and that makes me important, right? You get that? But now, see the picture. Our heads are together. Where are our feet? Yeah, out here somewhere. So the guy sitting in the number three place is eating feet. You get the picture? He's got feet in his face. 
Why did it take us so long to sit up at tables? I don't understand. But, but they would be eating with feet in their face. And nobody wanted to be at the end of the table like that. Nobody wanted to eat with feet in your face. So always the least important people, the, the ones that were nobodies, the nobodies go to the foot of the table. Understand the language? Go to the foot of the table and they eat there. And nobody wants to be there. So here's the thing, the party started, the red carpet's going, people are coming in, and what do they do? They all run and put their Bibles and their purses down in the good seats. They all run and they try to make sure that, that they're going to get a good seat. Nobody wants to be stuck in a bad seat, only a nobody would be in a bad seat. Jesus watches this whole thing and then gives them advice. His advice at first is very practical. He just says, think this through, guys. If you go put yourself in the number one seat like you're the most important person here, you're never going to be the most important person here. And when the most important person comes in, you're going to have to get up and move in front of the whole group. You'll be humiliated. So instead, why don't you just go take the lowest seat? Just go to the lowest seat expecting that somebody else will come in. But at any rate, if you're at the lowest place, the only way to move is up. Good advice. But then Jesus takes it further, and this is where it becomes very important for us. Jesus says, the ones that, that humble themselves, the ones that know how to take the low position, the ones that know how to forget about themselves, God will lift them up. God will put them in a seat of honor if you know how to take the lowest place. But those who exalt themselves, those who inflate themselves, God's going to bring them down. You, you continue to inflate your ego, f, 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 God is going to let all the air out of you. This is what Jesus says. All through Scripture, it's humility that is prized. It's humility, not swag, not being the focus, not being the center of attention, not being the name that everybody knows, but being the humble servant. That's what Christians aspire to, humility. And humility isn't about thinking low of yourself. It's certainly not thinking high of yourself. Humility just doesn't think about itself. You understand? We just must stop thinking about ourselves. So on this day of celebration with I love my church blazed across my chest, what are we going to celebrate if we're not celebrating us? If it's not about us, if this isn't our day, then... What's left to celebrate? One of the things we forget in Scripture is that in almost every instance when Jesus describes God the Father, the kingdom of heaven, he uses the celebration image that God is this God who prepares this amazing, amazing celebration and then invites the whole world to come. Jesus uses that kind of story over and over and over. And the part you just can't miss is that somehow the kingdom of God is, is like this never-ending celebration. The kingdom of heaven is a party, Tony Campolo says. Absolutely. God is this God who is himself the source of everything good, everything joyful, everything fun. And so in the very presence of God is the most eternal, marvelous, amazing, enjoyable, overflowing party you've ever imagined. You just can't understand the joy in his presence. 
So that's the picture that Jesus gives of the kingdom of heaven. It, it is a place of joy and nonstop celebration. You want to be there. And you want to know this God because his heart overflows with pleasure. So honestly, if we're going to celebrate the things that are worth celebrating, then maybe we should pay attention to what God celebrates. Something tells me if we just stick to what God celebrates and we celebrate those things, then we're going to be okay. So what does God celebrate? Well, according to Jesus, God celebrates when people accept his invitation. Look at this story, verse 16 and following, that the story of a man who prepares a great feast and sends out many invitations. And what happens? Everybody invited at first. What do they say? Sorry, I can't come. Everybody has an excuse. And these excuses are very lame. Do you see that? The first guy says, I bought a field and must inspect it. I can't come. What's lame about that? First off, nobody buys a field that they haven't already seen. That's bad real estate practice. You don't buy swampland in Florida, you understand? So the fact that he says he's bought land and never seen it, that doesn't make sense. And besides the fact, the land ain't going anywhere. He could always do that later. It's an excuse. Next guy, I bought some oxen, same thing. I want to try them out. Those oxen aren't going anywhere. This is an excuse. The third guy, lamest excuse of all, I've got a wife. What even does that mean? And she won't let you come? I, I don't understand. I've got a wife, can't come. And the bottom line is, for those who are looking for an excuse, any excuse will do. And honestly, some of you in this house, you've been making excuses a long, long time. God continues to call to you. God continues to offer you a new chance at life, a chance to start over. Continues to offer you a, a chance for you to give all of your rags and, and he gives you back riches, you understand? Continues to hold out the possibility of grace and salvation and hope and peace and love. And you just continue to make excuses. God celebrates when people say yes to his invitation. Nothing clearer than that. And then notice what else Jesus says. Jesus keeps hammering the basic point that if you really want to celebrate, if you really want to experience joy, then you've got to learn how to forget yourself and focus on others. But notice how Jesus frames it. It's not just any others. Jesus has this preference for people who can't do anything for you. Jesus says if you give something to somebody and you know that they'll pay you back, you're not generous. That's not anything. If you invite people to your house and then you know they'll send you a nice thank you note and they'll invite you back to their house, Jesus says that's not doing anything. That's not hospitality. You want to have a banquet? How about you don't just invite the church people? How about you invite the lost and the lame and the blind and the naked? I mean, this is what Jesus says. Do you really want to have a celebration? Give the party away. Don't throw a party for yourselves. Give it away. Throw it for people who can't possibly pay you back, who can't possibly invite you to their house. Invite the lost. Make the outsiders into insiders. Help the blind learn to see. Give the lame legs to walk on. Why don't you go and give the party to the poor? That's what Jesus says. So God celebrates when people say yes to his invitation. And God celebrates when... Sick and the poor and the needy are cared for and the outsiders brought inside. Did you see that? 
So what can we celebrate at Woodburn Baptist Church today? I think we can celebrate people saying yes to God's invitation. We can celebrate that. In this year, and this is the 1st of September, we, we baptized 49 people, nearly 50 people, 50 baptisms at Woodburn Baptist Church this year. That's amazing. Sounds like a lot of people on the one hand. It sounds like not a lot of people in some ways. Warren Week says that it's on his bucket list. You know what a bucket list is? Like before you kick the bucket, before Warren dies, he wants to be a part of a church that baptizes 100 people. So if he baptizes 100 people, Warren gets to see Jesus. <laughs> But you have people saying yes to God's invitation. They're saying it's people. That's people. That's why this church is here. That's why we're here, to see the lost get found. And, and, and we can celebrate that. And we need to press on toward more and more of that. that. That's good. That's worth celebrating. The scriptures say that all the angels in glory celebrate every time a single lost sinner makes his way home. We can celebrate that because they celebrate that in heaven. You know something really worth celebrating? By the end of this week, by the end of this week, Woodburn Baptist Church, this congregation, will have missionaries from this congregation on four continents. Wow. Four continents. I mean, North America, that's where y'all are, so I'm counting y'all. But you understand, I mean, Woodburn Baptist Church several years ago started a partnership with Nueva Vida, a Hispanic church plant over on Veterans Memorial Boulevard. I mean, it's wonderful that we send people to Honduras and Nicaragua, but, but understand, there's an incredible population of Hondurans and Nicaraguans and El Salvadorians in Warren County, and, and our church helped plant a church for them. And, and Nueva Vida is now one of the fastest growing and most exciting Hispanic ministries in the state of Kentucky. And, and we've invested tens of thousands of dollars in that. And something tells me that when Jesus says, give it away to people who aren't going to give anything back to you, it's got something to do with our neighbors in Warren County who needed a church. I'm, I think we can celebrate that. And our partnership in Perry, Oklahoma, where Pastor Brian Ahern and his wife Tina have, have managed to put together a, a ministry, a church plant there that's brought revival to the whole town. The, the whole town has had revival, and they're doing amazing work, and, and we get to be a part of that. I, I think we can celebrate that. Thank God for that. But then Central America, which I think technically is North America, right? Same continent. If y'all are ever on Jeopardy, I'm not calling any of you. Um, I think Central America is North America, same continent. But anyway, Central America, we have Kelly and Trisha Lawrence who left their lives, left their home, their children, their grandchildren, their business, and they've gone down there to rescue orphans in Honduras. You, you see in the pictures on Facebook, I mean, right now they're at the place where they're bringing in infants. When I was there two years ago, they couldn't possibly have cared for little ones that small. But now they're bringing in bed babies, rescuing bed babies in Honduras. Something tells me that when Jesus says, give to people who can't give anything back, he must have in mind something like one of those tiny babies in Honduras with no parents. Orphans. God bless them. Do you all know right now, okay, now we're going to South America. Right now, as I speak, Kenton Powell and Mark Riggenbach are preaching in Peru. They're preaching in Peru. 
Mark Riggenbach was a missionary kid who grew up there as his dad planted churches all in those mountains. And Kenton and Mark Riggenbach are hiking through those mountains, church to church, to encourage those believers. On one of these days, all those churches are coming together, and they want Mark and Kenton to preach all day long. I would love to hear Kenton Powell preach all day long, but, but he's going to do it. Praise God for that. They're in Peru. They're in Peru. Right now, as we speak, Lucas and Amanda Hughes are, are in Southeast Asia. Do you understand what they're doing? Do you understand that because of the generosity of our church, that we're taking clean water to, a, to villages that have no water, and it continues to spread and overflow? Woodburn Baptist Church took water to two villages, Dongolo and Perodati, right there side by side, and now other villages are getting water now. These are people who don't have water in their house until we begin to deliver those filters. We're taking water around the world, Ganun Kadul, the driest places on the planet. Water. And also the water of life. Lucas and Amanda, we pray, will plant two churches there. That, that's Southeast Asia. Do you understand? But that by the end of this week, Rebecca Morgan's going to be in Berlin, Germany. She's flying out on 9 11. God bless her. God help her. She's flying out on 9-11 to Berlin, Germany. You know what she's going to do? I mean, this Sunday she's in a pew back in the bluegrass worship service, but next Sunday she could be on the streets of Berlin rescuing girls who've been kidnapped and taken into sexual trafficking. She's going to rescue sex workers. Tell them about Jesus in Berlin, Germany. Something tells me we can celebrate that stuff. All of those things that we manage to do when we're not thinking about ourselves, when we're not trying to advance our name, when we're not trying to become known but trying to make Jesus known, when we don't try to be the big deal about ourselves but we begin to make a big deal about Christ, something tells me that that's where real joy comes from. As long as we put ourselves in the middle of this thing, don't you understand the party's dead from the start? But once we begin to forget ourselves and we begin to put Christ first and put others first, then understand the joy that flows out of God's great heart is going to waterfall into our hearts. That's where the celebration comes from. Well, let me say one more thing. There are those of you in this room who haven't taken that first step. When we talk about a God who is like one who plans a great party and sends out the invitations and then waits for response, God's still waiting for some of you to say yes to him. Now, all of this time, you've made a lot of excuses, but bottom line, you want your life to be all about yourself. You're not willing to surrender to Christ as Lord because you want to be Lord. You want to do your thing. You don't want to repent. You don't want God to change you because at this point you like yourself just like you are. I'm just begging you. If you really want to find something worth living for, you've got to put yourself out of the picture and give your life to Christ. If you really want joy that overflows, if you want to understand what true celebrating is, then you need to come back home to God who is himself the fount of all pleasure, the source of all joy. Until you accept his invitation and come back home to him, your life is dead from the start. 
The invitation is from God who begs you to come to him so that your joy can be complete, so that the very bottom of your heart can be filled with the joy that comes from his great heart. You'll never find this without him. And for the rest of us who claim to know him, we'll never truly learn joy or celebration until we learn how to forget about ourselves. Let's pray together. God, it is you whose name we lift up today. It is you who has made us alive. And God, our hearts overflow today. Oh God, forgive us for our selfishness, our self-centeredness. Forgive us, Lord, for taking credit for things that only you could do. Forgive us, God, for puffing ourselves up with pride when simply we're servants in your hand, God, worthy and willing. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll continue to bless this church, Lord, and, and give us reasons to celebrate, Lord. I pray that the celebration in heaven will somehow overflow into these pews, Lord, that we might share your joy. God, I pray today for lost sinners that have never made their way home, Lord, that they would come home. I pray, Lord, for the sick and the suffering and the sad, Lord. I just pray, Lord Jesus, that they would say yes to your invitation and come and find themselves made whole. And, Lord Jesus, I pray that Woodburn Baptist Church would always be a place that would give everything away to the world. Lord, let us not keep it for ourselves. Let us not continue to throw parties only for ourselves, Lord, but let us give it all away in the name of the one who has given it all to us. Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, I pray that others will see you in us. Pray this in your precious name. Amen.